0: I wish you would open your Bibles with me to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5, and just to notice the first couple verses. Verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, James is the half-brother of Jesus who early on did not believe in his brother, but now he does. He's a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James became uh, a pillar in the church that is one of the uh, strong uh, leaders of the church that people depended upon. Galatians 2 9 tells us, and he also was the leader of the council in Jerusalem that sought to uh, take care of the Jew Gentile situation, that very tense situation in the midst of uh, the first century, somewhere around 50 AD. This is written to the 12 tribes who are scattered among the nations. James was a spiritual leader, something like a pastor. And yet, a great persecution took place, and the tribes were dispersed throughout the nations. This book has a distinctly Jewish flavor to it, coming from a converted Jew to converted Jews. And it's plausible to think that that dispersion is what took place described for us in the book of Acts chapter 8. It says, on that day when Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the end of the world. So this is crunch time for the people of God who have been, because of persecution, put in situations that they did not anticipate and are facing circumstances that are challenging, to say the least, and testing their faith. Sounds like today. And so he says to them, greetings, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing this, that the trying or testing of your faith produces patience or endurance, perseverance. Perseverance is patiently enduring difficult times. It's interesting that this this book doesn't focus on deep theology, although that's the foundation of it, but it does deal with very practical problems for people who are in deep waters. It starts out with this idea of persevering, and it ends with the subject of persevering. And it tells us that we persevere through prayer. That's verse 5 and 6. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God, pray. And this generous God will give to you the wisdom you need without finding fault. But when you pray, make sure you pray believing. Make sure that your faith is connected, is seen in your prayers. That you're not merely up, offering up wishes with no confidence that God hears or that God answers. It starts with perseverance and it's connected with prayer. And the book ends with perseverance and it's connected with prayer. One of the major subjects is the practical importance and power of prayer. In chapter 1, prayer gives us wisdom. In chapter 4, if you have personal needs, ask of God. But make sure you ask with the right motive. So when it tells us God, God is generous, make sure you pray in faith believing. When it tells us we ask, you have not because you ask not, make sure you pray with the right motive. In chapter 5, it talks about persevering grace, that we are to be patient and to get through our tough times. And we've got the example of the old prophets who persevered. And even the perseverance of Job is mentioned in chapter 5 as an example of those who hung in there. And then if you're sick, if you're in trouble, the Bible says to pray. And then I think what is probably a summary statement, an incredible statement that is given to us in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man, some translations have it, it is speaking about mankind, it's speaking about men and women, so you could say the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now that, my friend, is an incredible statement. Let that sink down into your soul. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you would look at the original, there are only five words, and translating it in English, it almost sounds a little confusing. Much power, petition, righteous, produces. But the Greek language gives you a little more with some of their words than what we find in English. But it still is a challenge for translators and that's why you have some, some different translations of this amazing verse. I think the best sense of it is simply this. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful and produces results. Or put it this way. When godly people pray, powerful results occur. Warren Worsby said, we talk of manpower and horsepower and atomic power and nuclear power, but the greatest is prayer power. Now, that's not just a nice cliche. My friend, it's true. The power of that blast in Beirut is almost incredible for us to conceive and the damage that that happened lifting a car a half mile away but I tell you prayer power has more power I tell you that because that's what the Bible says but I'm not to be honest with you I'm not always sure I see that in my prayers do you? now I want that in my life. He ends the prayer section with this incredible statement. But then he adds to it an astonishing story. Biblical truth matched up with a human example. He did that earlier in chapter 5. Perseverance. Take a look at Job. And now he says, prayer is powerful. Take a look at Elijah. This is verse 17, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, this guy, Elijah, could pray. (laughs) If you go back in 1 Kings, you read about that time when he stood before Ahab. It's the beginning of 1 Kings 17, 17. And because of Ahab's wickedness, he says it's not going to rain on the face of the earth. Elijah had spent time with God, and now he came with that conviction and announced it to the king. And it didn't. As James tells us, it didn't rain for three and a half years. In chapter 17, he was staying with a widow, and her son died, and he prayed, and the boy came back to life. And then also, in First Kings 18, he has this contest with the priests of Baal, over 400 of them, and he prays, and fire comes down from heaven. And then after that contest, he prays again, and it starts raining. It's a great, great story of prayer. He prays, sends his servant out to look over the Mediterranean Sea, nothing's happening. He prays again, sends his servant out, nothing happening. Sends him out. He says, I see a little cloud like the size of a man's hand. And Elijah says, get ready for a gully washer. This guy could pray. But maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking. Comparing me to Elijah in prayer is like comparing me to Tiger Woods in golf. I don't measure up. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Elijah. Why do you use an example like that? I mean, that's only discouraging. But it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be discouraging. How so? Verse 17 says, Elijah was a human being just like us. Or some translations have it, his nature was just like ours. Just a person. In fact, 1 Kings 19 shows some of his weaknesses when he was bold before a king but cowered before the queen and ran when she threatened his life although he stood boldly before 400 prophets. You see, sometimes we're up here spiritually and sometimes we're down here spiritually. Can you relate to that? Sometimes we're bold and praying and other times we're fearful and running and we're just like Elijah. There was nothing superhuman about him. He's a man who is greatly used of God and will be greatly used of God in the future, but human just like us. So what do we do? I think this last... Incredible statement about prayer in the book of James is meant to lift our hearts above the fray of discouragement, above the difficulties of trials, and give us excitement and get us praying. Now, I want to take the remaining time just to look at this prayer, this statement about Elijah, and this statement about the effectual effectual prayer, And notice three vital components in it. The the first one is simply this, personal purity. For it says in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person. Now we have positional righteousness, that's justification, that's our position in Christ, And everything we do is based on that. You have to be a believer. You have to have the Spirit in your heart. You have to be saved with sins forgiven before you can enter into a real vital prayer life. But I think here he's talking more about practical righteousness, or we might say personal righteousness, walking with Christ. So we have righteousness in our Lord, and we have righteousness in our lives because of the Holy Spirit who lives in and through us. In other words, Elijah was godly. That's not an absolute statement. Relatively speaking, he's not perfectly godly or perfectly holy, but he's an honest individual seeking to follow God and walk according to the truth of God. And that's what we're talking about here. We've got to make sure that our sins are forgiven. And we need to make sure that we're walking in obedience to the revealed truth of Scripture. That's, as it were, the first component. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their cry." You want to know what God listens to? The prayers of his people. And Proverbs 15 says they are his delight. He listens with ears open attentively to every prayer you make. However, according to Psalm 66, if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not Say it again, the Lord will not. Could it be that my lack of answers to prayer is due to the sin that I protect within? Regard means to grant asylum. I'm willing to regard the sin in my heart as okay and overlook it and expect God still to answer my prayers. doesn't work that way. Isaiah 59 says, Surely the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. It's not that he cannot, he will not. So what I need to do then in my daily life is to go to the cross of Christ, confess my sin, and praise God for the sufficiency of the blood atonement that takes away every spot and stain. Because if you have no assurance that your sins are forgiven, and if you're trying to walk with God, but you're regarding sin in your heart, you'll fail. You'll fall. But if you humbly Come to the Lord every day and confess and turn from your sin. And by the way, it's not even just once a day, is it? (laughs) It's throughout the day. The humble heart is grieved by the Holy Spirit when we go astray and it's time to confess. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in London in the mid-1800s. Some believe maybe the greatest preacher in the English language. I don't know how you come to that conclusion, but he's up there. And one day he was crossing a, a busy square in London, Trafalgar Square maybe, I'm not sure, but one of those squares. And even in the 1800s it was busy with horses and buggies and people going back and forth. And he walked across the street and one of his members saw him with his big top hat on and he got barely to the other side. He was almost still in the street. He bowed and took his hat off. And then put his hat back on and continued. His members saw this and said, what is he doing? Praying? That's suicidal? In the midst of traffic? So he saw Pastor Spurgeon. day or two later and said, hey, I saw you walking across the street the other day and it looked like you were praying. He said, I was. Why? Because there was a cloud between me and my Savior and I didn't want to take another step until it was gone. (laughs) That's what it takes. So focused on walking in obedience that when sin enters in, you confess it and get rid of it. The prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful. There's a second component, and we'll call this human passion. Sometimes, verse 16 is translated, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. They take that from the Greek word much. It might mean much prayer. It might mean much power. But the idea of fervency certainly is in verse 17. Elijah was a human being, as we are, and he prayed earnestly or fervently. Fervency in prayer. What does that mean? You're all in. Energy. Passion. Now we must confess as believers that sometimes our prayer are as weak and lackadaisical as anything we do. Especially if you know prayers from memory and you feel like you have to say it every day and you just whip right through it. You could be sleeping and still say the prayer. Have you ever done that? I have. I'm not proud of it but i prayed the lord's prayer and got to the end and said now wait a minute what did i just say i said the whole thing but never engaged the heart passion to pray and passion in prayer that's fervency so fervency is compelled by our need and fervency is convinced of his power. Those two aspects develop in us a passion that will not stop. I am very needy and God has all power. Now you don't pray and I don't pray because one of those two things is missing in our life because when they join together, we pray and we pray passionately so what are you missing self-sufficient are you God to let you fall down a few times on your face so that you know you can't do it are you convinced that God is almighty are you convinced as Pastor Doug read a moment ago from Psalm 145 that he is trustworthy That every promise he makes, he keeps. Do you believe that? No, I mean, do you believe that? My new goal is to every day feel my need, which is not partial but total, and see his power, which is not partial but total. And to pray. Fervency in prayer. Look at Colossians chapter 4 sometime. And you'll see Epaphras wrestled in prayer. Or how about Hannah in 1 Samuel 1. Weeping passionately. Give me children or I die. Or the prayer of Jesus. And it looked like great drops of blood. We're coming for him, from him. That is passionate prayer. Jim Elliot wrote in his journal one time. The great missionary who gave his life for Christ at the age of twenty-nine in South America. He wrote this in college. I lack fervency and vitality in my prayer life, but I desperately long for it. Cold prayers, like cold suitors, are seldom effective. In their aims. Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan, said something similar cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. So I need to pray. Prayer, in its simplest form, is merely a heart wish turned Godward. It's a passion, it's a burden. To need, turn Godward, and you keep praying until He answers. Remember the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis thirty-two. Do you remember that? We find out that that's God, according to the Book of Hosea. It was the angel of the Lord. He's wrestling with God. And the angel said to Jacob, "Let me go." And he said. I will not let you go until you bless me. Many of our prayers are unanswered because we give up too soon. We lack the passion to keep praying. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. And he delights to hear you pray. And he's got all power to answer your prayers. And he wants us to experience our need and his tremendous power. There's a third thing. And this is called scriptural purpose. Scriptural purpose. You'll notice in verse 17 that Elijah was a human being, just as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain in the land for three and a half years, and he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. You see, where did he come up with this idea? Well, he's a prophet, so he probably just, you know, God told him when he was being fed by the ravens, by Brook Cherith. But no. I mean, maybe so, but it comes out of Deuteronomy 11. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 11. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul... Then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain your new wine and your olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for the cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But be careful. Or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods, which is exactly what they were doing under King Ahab. You will bow down to those other gods and then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will perish from the good land that the Lord your God is giving you. He took a scriptural promise and prayed it. Pray the promises of the word of God. That means you've got to get into the book. You've got to get into the book. Some of the greatest revivals of all time were revivals where they grabbed hold to a promise and would not let go of the hem of his garment and continued to pray. Lord, you said in your word, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We're opening our mouths. Fill them and we won't stop praying until you do. And revival broke out. Nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies beyond or outside of the will of God. That's why Jesus prayed, thy will be done. We read in 1 John chapter 5 verse 14, now this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that should dictate our prayer request. Bonhoeffer said it should not be the poverty of our heart but the riches of his word that form our petitions. But look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, link it up to verse 14, according to the will of God, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So James says ask in faith and... Ask not for selfish ends, and pray according to the truth of Scripture. Now, you say, Pastor, there are a lot of things that are outside of the truth of Scripture. I don't know if I'm supposed to take that job in Peoria. But as you pray and ask God to give you clear guidance and walk forward, praying that he will open and shut doors. You have the confidence that the sovereign God is going to answer those prayers. If someone is sick, you can pray for their healing with great confidence, all the while knowing it's in God's hands. But don't let that stop your praying. Donald Barnhouse said, I'm not so sure I believe in the power of prayer, but I do believe in the power of the one who answers prayer. So pray, and it doesn't do much. Pray to God with faith in his will. And what is it? Back to our promise. It produces amazing results. Wonderfully powerful. The word, the last word in that phrase from verse 16 is where we get the word energy. And it means something that is active. Visible results of God doing things on behalf of his people for his glory. And just as a car without gas cannot go and a pool without water defeats its purpose, a house without a family is empty and a body without a soul is dead. So a Christian without prayer cannot go defeats their purpose, is empty and dead. And too long, our churches have been filled with people who don't understand what a great thing prayer is. The new century version, when a believing person really prays, great things happen. I want to say amen. but I don't think I have the experiences that I should. But join me, will you? Join me in committing yourself to real prayer. Living a holy life. Praying with passion. And praying the word until God shows up. Heavenly Father, we need you. We are destitute without you, poverty stricken, helpless. Without you, we can do nothing. And Lord, I'm sure the good people of South and the people in this room, the people watching over the internet, they pray, we pray. But somehow it seems seems short of this wonderful promise. So Lord, let us push forward in faith to experience your work in our lives, your work in our families, your work in our church, your work in our communities, your work in our world. For we desperately need you to show up. In Jesus' name, amen.